Today on the show, we have Greece from 1978 and North by Northwest from 1959. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. I would like to talk to you today about something that has taken the world by storm. Influencing. Influencers, people getting on the web, being good looking, better than average looking at at the worst, and they're just on social media just pushing their products and And trying to get people to buy things and do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Which is basically the backbone of America. So I suppose I can't really be that upset by it. But, I mean, you see them on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you know, Facebook. Any of these these sites that, you know, that you can follow people on. These influencers have kind of taken over. A lot of them sell, like, really weird niche products that are just, like, I don't really know, you know... I've never heard of the brand. I don't really know what they are. I'm just kind of like, all right, whatever. I see them and I I just kind of let them pass me by. I don't really usually ever go to the site or try and buy anything because usually they're grossly overpriced or at least I assume they are. You know, some of them are starting to promote stuff that's not quite that severely terrible, you know? I mean, a lot of them are are promoting things like Target and, you know, Aldi and TJ Maxx and things like that. And I don't know if they're doing so at the behest of those companies, but they are definitely promoting shopping at those companies and explaining the things that you can do when shopping at those places to get good deals and things like that. It's honestly, it's a sound plan because whether it's a good looking guy or a good looking girl, they're probably going to make me want to buy something eventually because if I see a good looking girl, I think to myself, gosh, if I were to buy that product, perhaps I could actually have a chance with that girl, even though I know in my heart of hearts that that, that's just not the case. I mean, let's be honest here. And then, you know, if it's a good looking guy, then it's like, well, hey, I'll bet that guy gets a bunch of chicks. And if he uses this product, then maybe I should use that product and maybe I'll have the same change in fortune. Again, ridiculous thought process by me, but that is the thought process that they're counting on. And, you know, all these people are going, you know, balls to the wall just trying to get you to buy their products. And it's a sound plan. And the only thing that sucks about it is when, you know, you're looking and you're seeing these videos, you know, and they're they're mixed in with things. You know, some of the videos that you'll watch on like TikTok or, or the reels on Instagram and Facebook, it's like you're, you're watching ones that are just for entertainment, you know, that are just fun videos. They're funny or they're, you know, stupid or internet. They're sometimes informative. But like if you get influencer videos, you're getting like ads shoved down your throat. You know what I mean? It's not as good as it's not enjoyable to all of a sudden have an ad where you weren't expecting an ad but at the same time it's better I guess if I get to look at a good looking person while I'm you know having ads shoved down my throat then more power to you I guess because we're never going to get away from ads we might as well just make them more digestible so 
The first movie we have today is called Grease, and it was released on June 16th, 1978, based on the popular Broadway musical, and it was directed by Randall Kleiser. Uh, he made such movies as The Blue Lagoon, uh, Flight of the Navigator, which apparently I need to see Flight of the Navigator. I was told that this was like a good movie. I know nothing about it. I mean, I had ex I had the whole thing explained to me, but I don't remember anything about that description. And then he made Big Top Pee Wee, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which by the way, I get that it's hard to say that you made something bigger in like a catchy way, but saying Honey, I Blew Up the Kid sounds really terrible. Like it sounds like an explosion happened and that child did not survive. That's that's what it sounds like to me. He also made Red Riding Hood, which was a movie with Ma Amanda Seyfried, who I have noted here is hot, but she, the movie was not, probably not good. You know what I mean? It, it just did not look like a good movie. The writers on this one were Bronte Woodard and Alan Carr. Producers were Robert Stigwood and Alan Carr. The composer for the incidental music is Michael Gibson. Our lead actor is John Travolta, and, you know, he was in the the movie Pulp Fiction. He was in Saturday Night Fever, Look Who's Talking, you know, the first, or, you know, all three of those movies. And then he was also in Swordfish and things like that. I mean, he, he was in a bunch of stuff. Then we have Olivia Newton-John, who I also have noted here is hot, well was hot. Rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. She was very attractive in this. When, in her heyday, she was a very good-looking gal. She, I, I always love to say gal because it, it reminds me of my dad. My dad always says gal and he, you know, like that's how he refers to a lot of women. I just, I find it amusing because it sounds like such an old guy thing to say, so I enjoy making that kind of uh, statement. Uh, Jeff Conway is... The guy who plays Kaniki in this movie, and I think he was in that show Taxi, and he he really hasn't been in much else, guys. I, I hate to break it to you. And then there's also Stockard Channing, who plays the character Rizzo, and she also hasn't been in jack shit. I mean, really, I mean, she's been in other things, but nothing. I think she was in First Wives Club. That's one I'll throw out there. She's the one that, like, like basically sets the wheels in motion to make the First Wives Club happen. So, a little bit of casting notes. So, I've got a doozy of a note here, and <laughs> this is this is regarding the age of the cast, which it's kind of hilarious if you think about it, like, how much older these people are that are supposed to be high schoolers in this movie. Like, they're beyond that which is commonplace, you know? It's like, usually you expect people in their early 20s to be playing high schoolers. Like, that's just inevitable. Because it's a lot harder to find quality actors at a certain age range, I guess. But this is the note I have. Most of the principal cast were well past their high school years. When filming began in June 1977, Stocker Channing was 33, Michael Tucci was 31, Jamie Donnelly was 30, Annette Charles was 29, Dame Olivia Newton-John was 28, Barry Pearl was 27, Jeff Conway was 26, Dee Dee Khan was 25, John Travolta was 23, Dinah Manoff was 21, and yeah, there, I mean, nobody, basically nobody in this movie was of high school age when they were in this movie because that was just, it was normal at the time to, to cast like that. Carrie Fisher, Susan Day, and Deborah Raffin 
uh, and Marie Osmond also were all considered for the role of Sandy, which is Olivia Newton-John's part. And, you know, I can I can briefly go through, you know, it's John Travolta's Danny Zuko. Olivia Newton-John is Sandy. Jeff Conaway is Kanicki. And then Stockard Channing is Rizzo. And so let's just charge right into this whole plot thing. This plot synopsis, this is what I came up with. In 1958, two summer lovers part ways after a whirlwind romance to return to school, only to find themselves attending the same academic institution. There you go. That's, that is brief, that is to the point, and it gives a promise for dramatic things to happen. So, the, the movie starts off and we see Danny and Sandy and they're, you know, they're having their, their summer loving and they are, they're playing the song, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. And I don't know the history of me- Love is a Many Splendored Thing, but I know that that, that sentence doesn't really make sense to me. Like, splendor, it's a many splendored thing. Like, I get what it's saying, but nobody says a many splendored anything anymore. You know what I mean? It's just, it's weird. I don't, I don't really understand where that came from. Anyway, Danny starts, we see him kissing Sandy, like, violently. Like, it's, it's aggressive, like you see in older movies. And it's like, what am, what am I looking at here? Like, why is he being so aggressive? And she's like, Danny, don't spoil it. And he's like, it's not spoiling it, Sandy. It's only making it better. And it's like, holy shit, no, the fuck it is not, Danny. Get the fuck out of here. And so then it breaks in, you know, once we think these two lovebirds, they think they're parting ways never to see each other again. And then it breaks into the intro to Greece, you know, and it's this cartoon intro. And it's a pretty nifty intro. And th- this used to be more commonplace. Like, I don't know if, if Greece started the the trend of having an animated intro like this, but it's like, it's, it's a really cool way to start a movie. I really like it. And they did it a lot in the eighties and it was, it was a pretty nifty thing to do. As soon as it came up and it said Greece, I immediately had to ask myself the question, why is this movie called Greece? Like I understand there's greased lightning. They have greased hair, you know, it's, I mean, I get that. And I, I looked it up, and apparently that is exactly, it's it's an ode to the 50s. It's basically just them saying it's an homage to greasy hair, greasy engines, and greasy food, which makes sense. I mean, it totally makes sense. So, and you know, as they're going through the characters, you see Kanicki, and I don't know, I assume Kanicki is a last name, but it might be a first name, but I have I never heard of this name outside of this movie, so it's very bizarre to me. And we never find out what his full name is, to my knowledge. And so it's just a little bit of an odd choice. They so you know the the intro winds down, and we kind of get you know the shot of the front of the school, and they're all the the T birds, the you know the black leather jacket wearing clan at school you know they're they're a group they're like the cool guys they're the greaser types and i i couldn't help but notice that like half of them aren't wearing their leather jackets but the other half of them are and i'm like why why wouldn't all the t-birds wear their not gay matching jackets on the first day of school also it's way too fucking warm looking outside in this scene for anybody to be wearing 
any more clothing than they need to be wearing. Like, it is insane to me to think that, like, oh, yeah, let's just have them wear all of this, you know, leather and see how much they can fucking, you know, die from heat exhaustion or something. And I don't know if between these, you know, it's, it's these five guys and they are, it's like they're all, like, you don't know if they're, their leader is really Kanicki or if it's Danny or if it, you know, who it is. But it's like, I'm not sharing with you all of the names of these guys because I only know basically, like I've seen this movie several times and I only know the name of the, uh, the you know, Kanicki and Danny. And then I know Putsy, I think is one of their names and maybe Sunny. But honestly, if gun to my head, if you asked me to name all of them, I would not be able to like tell you which one was which and who was who. I don't have any fucking idea. Like, and I'm not going to make it a point to, you know, try and figure it out and, and then, ex- you know, extend that courtesy to you. No, 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 no. I don't think so. Um, and it seems like everyone is arriving at school at about noon-ish. I mean, it it's not... It's not early in the day. It's It doesn't look early at all. And it's like the first day of school, whoopee fucking shit, you know? I mean, just... And everybody's kind of, you know, catching up with each other. They're razzing each other about this and that and the other thing. And they start doing this, you know, they start doing the songs. And I won't, like, explain every time they're doing a song. But the fir- the opening song, which is Summer Nights, which is probably like the flagship song of this movie like it's it's the song that they have to start out on the right foot and they do an amazing job and the only thing like I love the song I love a lot of the songs in this movie I'm not a big musical guy by the way don't really like many musicals but this movie I love the songs and I for the most part there are a couple that I don't really care for but I will put them on playlists on Spotify and listen to them regularly. And then there are some of them that I don't do that, but I still like them. It's just kind of the look of the draw. <laughs> so they, you know, they're, they're, they have, they have their little song and dance, you know, and that's the thing that drives me nuts about the songs is like the choreography drives me fucking nuts. Like I don't really like the dancing that they do to a lot of the songs. And mostly this opening song, they do this thing where, Sandy is like skipping around with you know the nerdy girl and you know whatever and you just it's offensive to all five senses I mean it's just it's too much but it's it's still a good song so I I tolerate it and you know all of these people they're they're you know Hollywood movie stars so they're all pretty decent looking so it's like I can deal with that and they go so they they go you know they basically figure out that the guy Sandy fell in love with over summer break is Danny and they know Danny obviously and so they go to this pep rally and they're going to basically just spring Sandy on Danny and have them you know meet each other again and it like it's so like the build-up to it like they they're they're doing the pep rally and the the coach is talking about like you know, what they're going to do to the other team and how they're going to just massacre them. And then he says, well, and then after that, we'll come back and ring that victory bell like we always wanted to. And it's like fucking great. Like, I just, I love the the silliness of that, but it's, it just makes me happy. I would say that like, so basically the issue with this movie, the reason why it doesn't just turn out that, you know, oh, Sandy's going to the same school as Danny and... They loved each other over the summer, so why don't they just stay together, you know, get back together? Well, 
Danny's basically got to keep up this douchey cool guy image and not like, you know, upset the natural order of things, I guess. And it's like, he, he basically is just acts like he's too cool for Sandy now. And it's like, it's such a bad look for him. Like, I, I don't, he's so, uh, he's so dorky when he's trying to be cool that it's like, I don't, what, do you really think what you're doing is cool? Like, do you really think so? Cause it's not, I mean, it's, it's really, really ridiculous to look at. Like, and it's, it's always good to have friends like Danny's around to remind you not to be yourself, you know, to like basically stare you down when you show real raw emotion without you know, having been hampered by conformity and things like that. So looking, okay, because I'm just that kind of guy, I, I'm sorry I have to do this. So just looking at the four pink ladies, because that that's the girls group. They are, okay, there's, aside from Sandy, you've got Rizzo, who is, Rizzo is not overly attractive, but I really enjoy Rizzo's personality. Like, it, I really respond to it. And it's very appealing to me. So I would say she's like the most crush worthy of all of them, honestly. And then Jan, I would I would say is my speed. She's she's one that I feel like I'd be more likely to have a chance with. And, you know, I, I'd be willing to spend the rest of my life with her if I if I'm totally honest. Um, Marty doesn't appeal to me at all. Like Marty is is the girl that has like a bunch of different boyfriends and she's she kind of acts like she's a little too good for everybody all the time and it doesn't really fly for me and Frenchie Frenchie's just okay she's she kind of doesn't I don't know she her personality doesn't really do much for me so it's kind of like yeah whatever I I can I can live without Frenchie Sandy is honestly it's it's in this moment as I'm talking about these girls I have to mention that Sandy is like an upper echelon hottie level of attractiveness. I'm not just saying that because Olivia Newton-John passed away. Sandy is very attractive. Like she, she's a goody good. You know what I mean? She's, she's supposed to be the goody good. And I think, I, I don't know if I like her better when she's a goody good or when she's, you know, trying to be badass, but she is, she's very appealing. And I, I think like She's the kind of girl that, like, if you asked her out, she wouldn't, like, laugh in your face, but she would definitely tell you no. If you if you know that kind of vibe I'm talking about, then that's that's what we're talking about here. So, they keep referencing Annette in this movie, and I guess it's supposed to be Annette Funicello. And, I mean, it's like, they make some comment about nobody's jugs are bigger than Annette's, and would you pull that crap with Annette? Or, Rizzo, what are you doing out without Annette? And it's like... Why are you referencing this person that has no cultural relevance clearly anymore? Like why? And was Annette Funicello like, I mean, so she had to be a 50s star. I don't fucking know. I don't know what the deal is. I didn't look her up because damn it, they didn't give me any, any real reason to. So basically like with Danny and Sandy kind of being at odds with each other because of the way Danny acted and... Kaniki is getting involved with Rizzo, who used to be involved with Danny, which to me is a total bro code violation. You cannot fucking do that shit. You cannot date the chick that your friend used to date. That's not okay. Especially in the situation where it's like there are a dozen other girls at the school that Kaniki could probably land, but 
you know, Rizzo just happens to be there, but Danny doesn't express any annoyance with it, so I guess if he doesn't care, he doesn't care. And when they're they're together, you know, Kaniki and Rizzo, they are in the backseat of the car, and they're about to have sex, and the condom breaks, you know, like, Kaniki goes to grab his condom, and he goes to put it on, and it breaks, and basically, like, in this scenario, I, I am forced to remind everybody that there are non-vaginal intercourse options available to you, you can do oral, anal, make out, mutual masturbation. The list goes on. It's there's so much stuff to do. You can you don't have to fuck right in that moment, which is what they do. They just decide, well, you know what, fuck it. We'll throw caution to the wind and just have sex in this fucking backseat because we're high schoolers and you only live once, right? So but abs I put the note but abstinence is never okay. So honestly, though, you you see you see this rival gang. You, one guy that gets referred to as Crater Face. I don't know if he has a real name, but he's got a girlfriend named Cha Cha, and Cha Cha is very attractive, if especially if you're into older women, because. I didn't look her age up, but I would be willing to guess she was pushing 40 in this movie. Like, she, maybe she just has that look about her, but she, she looks much, much older than any of the other people in this movie. Like, honestly, I, and I'm not trying to be mean. And so we get, you know, Kaniki has bought this car and they're going to, you know, spruce it up and give it a new, you know, do a lot of body work and give it a new paint job and put a new engine in it and all this stuff. And... They sing the song Grease Lightning, Greased Lightning, and I've always enjoyed the song. I loved it when I was a little kid. I thought it was such a fucking great little number, you know. I, I always sang along with it. Literally the most sexual song I've ever heard. Like I've never ever been in a position where I I had, you know, actually understood that until I listened to it when I was older and it's like I looked up the lyrics and I'm like you are supreme your chicks will cream for greased lightning yeah that's right and so the entire concept of this song you know it's like they're just talking about it's you know greased up and it's ready to go you know it's and it's gonna go fast right and so that's the whole basic concept behind it. But it's just, they keep making these comments throughout the song. And it, it, they're like, it's a real pussy wagon. Like, that's an actual lyric in the song. Anyway, it always bothers me because, like, they they basically do this, like, really sped up sequence of them fixing up the car. But they don't actually fix up the car. Like, once they get done with the song, it's like they're showing it getting done. And then all of a sudden, it, it flashes back to where they're really at with it, which is nowhere. And it's this beat-up hunk of junk. It just, it never, you know, like, the one from the dream sequence doesn't ever look like the one that they end up getting at the end. And that drives me fucking bonkers. And then I realize at, at that point with the song... Like, when they're dancing around the car, and Danny is running, and he's got, like, a, a box of, like, saran wrap, and apparently it's a reference to condoms, so it's, like, even more sexual than I thought it was before. It's like, what the fuck? And I, and then, you know, the, the Scorpions, the rival gang, they have a car, and it's this cool black car, this convertible with um, flames on the side. And I used to think the Scorpion's car was really cool. I still do, but I used to too. And so Sandy is is on a date with this, you know, she's 
kind of basically trying to make Danny jealous. And so, so she takes this guy to the, you know, the, the diner or whatever you want to call it. And it's like the guy she's with is a total jock and she goes to put, uh, some songs in the jukebox. Danny walks up to her and, you know, he apologizes for the way he acted at the pep rally and he's so sorry and all that. And she, and he like, and she's like, she says how much, you know, he's like basically giving her a raft of shit for being with this new guy. And she's like, no, I really, I like him. He's really simple. You know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, a lot nicer. And it's like, no one has ever called somebody simple and meant nice things about it. Like never. And, he, and Danny says, don't make me laugh, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, he's such a fucking dork. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit what anybody says. And, like, throughout this entire fucking movie, he's a dork. Like, to the bitter core, he is a dork. And even when he goes and he decides he's going to try and be a jock to win Sandy back, and he is smoking a cigarette in the gymnasium he is actually still dorky and so he goes through the ringer trying to figure out a sport to play and all this stuff and we uh we basically we we have this sequence of danny learning these sports and it's like basically all of a sudden sandy just decides she doesn't want to be with with jock guy anymore and she wants to be with danny and so they start dating again and they go to the diner and you know, Rizzo and Kaniki show up and, you know, they kind of spoil their privacy and all that stuff. And this is when we find out that Frenchie is a beauty school dropout and she is doing, you know, she's having trouble dyeing hair and she dyes her hair bright pink. And I mean, it, it would be a cool look nowadays, but like nobody was doing that in the 1950s. Like, trust me on that. And it was like, they, they do the sequence. And this is the one song in the movie that I have only sat through one time, I think, in my entire life, and it's the Beauty School Dropout song. I just hate every fucking minute of it. It is a terrible song, and there is no reason it should be in there. This guy that's, like, not even a part of the movie comes in and starts singing. It's like, why do we do this? And it just made me think, as I was watching Beauty School Dropout, as it was being fast-forwarded, I realized how much easier it is to fast forward everything now. Like you can easily jump forward, you know, however many seconds at a time, or you can fast forward and, but you can like, if you realize you've gone too far, you can click back a little bit and it's not too tough. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's a lot fucking better than it ever was on VHS. And then they do, they go after the whole beauty school dropout thing. There's the national bandstand thing that they're doing in their, their gym. They're going to, um, have a dance contest and, um, you know, this guy Vince Fontaine comes there and he's the host of National Bandstand and Marty is like all into him because he's a star. They There's a moment where the rival gang's girl, you know, Cha-Cha, she says, they call me Cha-Cha because I'm the best dancer at St. Bernadette's. And it also helps that I've probably been in high school for like 20 years, you know, because that's, that's what it is. I mean, it's not like there's anything else to really believe. This chick looks so much older than she should. And so Kaniki is with Cha-Cha now because him and Rizzo are on the outs. And Cha-Cha was also once involved with Danny. And Danny is apparently not pissed off at all about what's going on. And he's like kind of like hiding it from Sandy. What he's, you know, what ex what his 
prior relationship with Cha-Cha was. And Sandy, like, sees right through it, but she just kind of lets him be a douchebag for a while. And Danny doesn't, he, he doesn't, like, okay, so St- Sandy storms out, and Danny doesn't follow her. Like, Danny just lets her walk out, and then he finishes the dancing competition, and it's like, what are we, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, Danny, you could easily just fucking walk off too. You know, you don't have to fucking stay back and be cool with everybody else. Like, basically, as far as I can see in this movie, Sandy is nothing but a saint to Danny, and he just keeps shoveling shit in her face for the fuck of it. Like, he has no real reason to be like that, but he is. And it, it turns out Rizzo is, you know, she's, she's pregnant and, you know, she has her little sad song about being pregnant. And apparently, according to IMDb, that song is believed by a lot of fans to be about abortion. And it's like, okay, I mean, it could be if you want it to be. It, that's the great thing about art is that you can imagine it to mean anything you want it to mean, but that doesn't mean it necessarily does mean that. And so the, 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 the cliche comes up where it's like the good guy acts like they're ready to come at this, you know, this bad guy. And then the, the other good guys hold them back from attacking. And it's like the most annoying cliche in the fucking world. I cannot fucking stand it. And so that that's what happened. That's that's Danny that goes after the Scorpions guy that they call Craterface. And it's like they hold him back and then Danny has to race because Kaniki gets bumped on the head and all this shit. And it's like, yeah, okay. And so, you know, Danny does it. You know, he goes on the race and it's a pretty good sequence. It's it's brief, but it's to the point. You know, it's, it's good. And I mean, it's no Fast and the Furious, but... It'll do. As we reach the final scenes of the film, I was stuck wondering, is Sandy going to completely change her appearance and behavior for a man who hasn't earned her love? Yes. Yes, she is. That is 100% what's going to happen. I don't know why she does it, but she does look good. I will say that the hair could use some work, I think, especially considering that's supposed to be like Frenchie's specialty. And like Sandy... But Sandy looks great. I mean, she really does. And the songs, the songs here at the end, you know, we get You're the One That I Want, and then and that's the one where they go around the fun house and they're dancing around, and it's pretty nifty. And then they have uh, We Go Together, and both of those songs right on top of each other, they're fucking killer. I love those songs. They, I, I really like this the, the music in this one, guys. It's The songs are amazing, and they're more consistent than any musical I've ever seen because, like, I haven't seen... One that I need to see is Fiddler on the Roof, but on the same token, like, I remember, like, I liked Seven Brides for Seven Brothers growing up, which is, like, an old, I think, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, and it's, like, it has no fucking business. Like, there are a lot of really good songs in it, but there are also a lot of songs that are not great in it, you know? Like, I mean, probably, probably not. Now that I'm thinking through, it's not quite as bad as all that, but it's it's definitely not as good as Grease. I mean, Grease is fucking solid. The cast really does their best to behave as high schoolers despite everything else proving to the contrary. And the pacing is really great. We never like really get a slow spot in this movie. It's exactly what it needs to be and it it doesn't, you know, it, it's apparently there a lot of shit changed from, you know, when it was a Broadway play 
to being adapted for the screen. But it, I mean, it it looks great. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great film. My biggest con- criticism is going to be cut that piece of shit beauty school dropout song. I don't give a flying shit about that song at all. And a little bit of trivia for you. So Elvis died the day they shot the slumber party scene where he is referred to in Rizzo's song, Sandra D, where they kind of like poke fun at Sandy. You know, she says, Elvis, Elvis, let me be. Keep that pelvis far from me. And then Olivia Newton-John had to be um, torn out of and sewn into her suit for the final scene where she's, you know, got this skin tight leather and all that stuff, which ironically, Michelle Pfeiffer is in Greece too. And she had to be sewn into her Catwoman suit in Batman Returns. Isn't that a fun little tidbit that Brandon just knew without even having to look it up? Okay. IMDb Nuggets. And Saturday Night Fever from 1977 and Pulp Fiction from 1994, John Travolta also played a character who entered a dance contest. Yeah. Yep, that's pretty exciting. It's not as bad as this one, because this one is exceedingly long. So, John Travolta's characters in Saturday Night Fever and this movie have similar names. There's a Y at the end of the first name, Tony, Danny, and there's an O at the end of the last name, Monero, Zuko. They're also similar types. Both are tough guys. They are bad boys who are in a gang. Both are from a blue-collar background and are pursuing a woman who is a higher social strata. Both are very popular with the local tough guys in the neighborhood. Both are great dancers. Both are ladies' men who are trying to commit to one woman for the first time in their lives. Both are callow and immature, but seem to have potential and promise for maturity and character growth. And in both cases, the lady, Stephanie or Sandy, is one the one who unlocks this potential. That is... It's not, I don't know what that is, but it's not trivia. Just shut the fuck up next time. Just don't even fucking bother. Okay. Eugene sings, we go together with the rest of the gang in the Broadway production, and Rizzo kisses him. That's nicer than the movie ending with Duty slamming him in the face with a pie. The movie does glorify bullying, in parentheses. What? Okay. Well, A, Duty is apparently the, the fifth guy's name. I didn't realize that, but... The movie does glorify bullying. It's like, this is not fucking social commentary hour in the fucking IMDb trivia section. This is supposed to be factual. Runtime, 110 minutes. Budget, $6 million. Worldwide gross, 366.2 million. IMDb rating, 7.2. Rotten Tomato critic score, 76%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 87%. Personal rating, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, five out of five stars because this is a fucking classic musical. It's one of the few that if somebody was going to force me at gunpoint to watch, I would willingly watch without needing the gunpoint. That's where it's at. North by Northwest, released on July 1st, 1959, directed by the one and only Alfred Hitchcock, who also directed... Rebecca, Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt, Spellbound, Notorious, Rope, Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, 
The Wrong Man, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds, among many others. I love Alfred Hitchcock. He is one that, honestly, I would do an episode per month if I could, but there are too many other movies to talk about, guys. I and I don't feel like that's what people want. So anyway, the writer of this movie was Ernest Lehman. He also wrote Sabrina, which is a good one, with uh, Humphrey Bogart, and The King and I, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Those are, that's a pretty fucking solid resume, honestly. And a lot of those, I think, were after this movie, maybe? I don't actually know. That's a bold statement. That's not true. Never mind. Okay, produced by Alfred Hitchcock, and the score of this movie is amazing. And uh, it was by Bernard Herrmann, and he worked on a lot of other Alfred Hitchcock movies and on other movies outside of Alfred Hitchcock. So he he did Psycho, which is a very great score, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, and then he was on Citizen Kane, Anna and the King of Siam, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Original Cape Fear, Fahrenheit 451, and Taxi Driver. And we have our leading man, Cary Grant, a.k.a. Archibald Leach, because it's just such an attractive name. I I have to... Because everybody always talks about Cary Grant being such a classic, good-looking guy... I always have to reference that his name is Archibald Leach. So if I call him Archibald or Archie or anything like that, just know I'm talking about Cary Grant. He plays Roger Thornhill in this movie. He was also in His Girl Friday, The Philadelphia Story, which is one of my favorite movies ever, Suspicion, Arsenic and Old Lace, which is fucking unwatchable, Notorious, To Catch a Thief, and Charade, Charade is one I might cover on this show sometime down the road because it's actually public domain, and so I can use clips from it, and I usually don't do that, but every once in a great while, I kind of want to. And then we've got Eva Marie Saint, who I have noted here is hot. She plays the character Eve Kendall, and she was in On the Waterfront, and that was like, I mean, in this era, that was like it. But she was also in Because of Winn-Dixie and Superman Returns. And she actually plays Martha Kent in Superman Returns. Okay, so then we've got James Mason, who plays the character Philip Van Damme. And he's also in Lolita, which I'm on the fence about. I'm not a big Stanley Kubrick fan. Don't really care for him. A Star is Born, the original. The Verdict and Heaven Can Wait. Okay, so casting notes, Jimmy Stewart wanted to play the lead, but Hitchcock had already decided on Grant. Hitchcock waited until he knew Stewart had already lined up another movie to offer it to him, so he knew he couldn't accept. It's probably a solid play. That's a good way to not hurt any feelings. Of course, if, you know, Jimmy Stewart ever heard about it after the fact, he probably was not too happy, but what can you do? So... It's honestly like just starting off the movie, we get the opening credits and they're like kind of juxtaposed on the side of buildings. And, you know, we get this really fucking fast paced score and it's very exciting and all this cool shit's, you know, coming in with the instrumentation and everything. And it's it's just really well done. It, it's just like, so this movie is so bizarre because it's like, it's like he's going to basically talk to his mother and she... Like, he he wants to let her know, like, hey, don't, you know, don't forget that we have this thing to go to tonight. And so he goes to, like, send her a telegram or some old-timey fucking thing. And 
these two guys come and just fucking whisk him away and take him wherever the fuck they feel like. And he's just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, what's going on? And they have reason to believe that he is this guy named Kaplan. And his actual name, um, Cary Grant's real character's name is Roger Thornhill. And so, basically, these guys think he's this other guy. And it's just... It's amazing to me that they, like, take him away without explanation. It's like, you have no idea what the fuck's going on, and neither does Thornhill. You know, so it's like, the only person that you're identifying with in this movie so far has no fucking idea. He can't shed any light on what's going on. And there are a lot of uh, creepy characters in this sequence with, you know, Thornhill gets taken to this house, and there's just all these creepy guys about that are just... They, they look like bad news. You're meant to understand that they're not good people. And it would just honestly be so fucking frustrating. Like, just, it's like they're they're questioning him. And he's like, I'm not the guy you think I am. I'm not, I don't know why you think this, but I'm not this Kaplan character. I, I have no idea who that is or why you would even think that. But trust me, it's really not me. And it's like, he you know, he keeps telling them this and they keep dismissing it as him just trying to get out of something. And it's like, no, like seriously, he probably isn't really the guy, but they don't even like entertain the idea that he could possibly not be the guy. And he keeps denying all the stuff. And it's like, they keep getting annoyed with him because he's, he's acting like he doesn't, you know, know what they're talking about. And, and this guy walks in, I have to make note of this because a guy walks in with a cigarette in his hand and he's like holding underneath it, like cupping his hand, but it's like he's facing the cup of his hand toward his mouth and it just looks so unpleasant. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look like it would be comfortable or natural at all. And he keeps asking them to go home and then they force him to drink like a whole bunch of bourbon, which I still maintain like how, how you doing that? You know what I mean? Like, how are you getting that fucking liquor into him? And guess what? If I, I mean, I can make myself throw up. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. It's like, if they, even if they force it down your throat, it's in there. Unless they're fucking tying your hands behind your back, you can purge. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not that ridiculous. And so they take him and they put him in a car and they're going to fucking basically make it look like it was some kind of accident and they just are going to kill him. And he is a little too lucid, like he's super drunk, but he's a little too aware of what's going on. And he basically like foils their plan and he escapes, but is still super drunk. And then he gets stopped by the police and taken into custody and he has to call his mother, all this fun stuff. And so it's all this stuff that like, you know, they go to court and, you know, it's it's his mother and his lawyer in the courtroom with all these people. And, you know, Thornhill's pleading his case that he's not, you know, they thought that he was this guy. He's telling them the whole story. And then it's like the mom is just, she she doesn't fucking believe a word he's saying. And it's it's kind of annoying, but it's like, you know, because it'd be nice if, if he had somebody on his side in this situation. And at this point, you got nothing. You got nobody to look to. Everybody is not interested in giving a shit about good old Archie Leach. And the problem is, is like, he also is not doing a great job of demonstrating that he understands that like, you need to, oh, you know, like read the room and not say things to annoy people and like say, I'm, I'm sorry. Like 
Because his body language, it's like, it seems more like he is lying when he's talking because of the way he's acting. It's like he's all fucking super over the top with his body language and stuff. Instead of just saying, your honor, honestly, I just, I have no idea what is going on here. I know that this is character assassination. They're trying to, you know, take me down and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, he doesn't handle it the right way. And I would say it's, this is probably not wholly true, but I would say that there are like some borderline horror aspects to the beginning of this movie because it kind of, it's kind of um, similar to the movie The Wrong Man, with that's an, an also an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and it's got Henry Fonda in it. And basically, it's like they pick up this guy who is not the guy they're looking for, but they think it is. And basically, like, Henry Fonda's character almost goes to fucking jail because of a misidentification, you know what I mean? And so... Like, I mean, you were honestly right there with him, though, on this whole, like, being annoyed with what's going on to him. Like, it, it's, it fucking irritates the shit out of you. And then they, they do this, you know, basically he escapes and he runs out and they do an overhead shot of uh, him, you know, running out of this building. And it, I can't really tell. It doesn't, it doesn't look real. It looks like a matte painting, but... I don't know how they accomplish what they do. Like, I don't know if it's an animation or something, but it's gotta be fake. Like, it's there's no fucking way. They get this cool-ass shot looking straight down at the earth from, like, way up high, and all you can see is this guy running to his car, and it's, like, it's so fucking awesome. Like, Alfred Hitchcock knew what he was doing. So, Thornhill crosses paths with... Eve, who is Eva, Eva Marie Saint's character, and she's looking as gorgeous as ever, and she has absolutely no reason to cover for Thornhill, but she does, and, or at least you don't think she does, and then, you know, so she hides with him in this train car, and she is, like, all a fucking about him, like, she wants him so fucking bad, and, you know, it's like, she's constantly covering for him all this shit, and it's just like, what are we talking about here? You know what I mean? Like, what? Why? Why would she be so into him? And it's not like you know, even for the reason you find out later, it's like she didn't. She really was just that into him. Like, a, I mean, must be fucking nice to have that going on. But this is definitely a James Bond movie with like a more obnoxious guy instead of James Bond. Um, and and so it, it follows a lot of the same beats, and it you know it has a lot of the same things going on. And it's, but I mean, this woman, it's like, she is all over him. She's practically fucking humping his leg in this train car as she's just talking to him about like, basically like the, the, not even foreplay, but like just the buildup of like talking about like, oh, you know, this is what I'm going to do to you. And this is what I want to do and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, they don't, they don't do it very like, I mean, they should just be doing it. Like, the way they're talking, they should already be having sex before they even fucking can get two sentences out. But they don't. I mean, not right away. <laughs> and I actually put in my notes, fucking bang already. Jeez. The age difference between these two is 20 years, which I was kind of surprised. He was 55 and she was 35. I thought she would have been like late 20s. And mid-50s for him would have been about right for what I was thinking. But when they part ways, you know, she's going to try and help him out. And she's going to have him meet this guy. And she sends him out to 
um, the middle of nowhere, and we get the infamous crop duster scene where Cary Grant is in the middle of this field, and this crop duster plane comes, you know, just bearing down on him, and he's just running for his life, and, you know, all this shit's going on, and, I mean, there's nobody else around, and... And so he he figures out a way to get back and, you know, it's like he, he finds Eve again. Basically, like, she is trying to get rid of him. Like, she's not trying to kill him, but she's trying to, like, get him the fuck out of her business because she knows what's better for him than he does. And he doesn't he doesn't want to do anything differently, different than what he's been doing, you know, and he calls her naughty when he sees her. And all I can think when I hear that is, I mean, like, we always hear naughty and nice for Santa Claus and stuff, but, like, it's basically only got sexual connotations when you get older, and I don't like it. I don't like, I don't want the word to be used, I want it to be eradicated from the English language. I don't like it. It's fucking weird. Anytime I hear somebody say it, I just give this, like, cringy look like what the fuck are you saying that for anyway the this movie is a bit of a slow burn like it it takes a long time to get where it's going I will say that like that's my only gripe about it but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just you have to fucking pay attention and that's tough for a guy like me to do he goes to this auction he you know he's He's given Eve a big raft of shit about, you know, what kind of person she is. And he's basically just being really mean with her. They, like, they inter- they um, they stage this, this scene where, you know, she has to shoot him. And she shoots him with a blank. But they want to make it look like he's out of the picture. And it's like she, she goes to see him for a minute after he gets, you know, fake shot. And she says to him, I really loved this line. I don't know why, but he says, what's wrong with men like me? She says, you don't believe in marriage. He says, I've been married twice. She says, see what I mean? That's, that's great fucking dialogue. That's fucking amazing. I love that line, that string of lines. And he goes back, you know, so he's like, supposed to be hiding in this hospital and he's supposed to not get himself in trouble and he breaks out to go save her and I put in my notes that he's you know he's got to go back and do it but it does seem like an iffy situation and I immediately responded to myself and said I guess it should be an iffy situation Brandon it's a fucking movie okay and so they have this big chase you know they're in this they're right next to Mount to Mount Rushmore you know it's a very iconic and amazing scene and they're, you know, it's this big foot chase across these faces and stuff and I mean, you don't really know like I mean, you're on the fucking edge of your seat the whole time. It it's not clear what's going to happen. It's just it's fucking great. I love it. There's a there's a moment when she's walking around this this edge of, you know, this rock that her and Cary Grant are walking around and she sees a man waiting for them and Cary Grant doesn't see him right away and she just screams bloody murder and I'm like, couldn't you just say fucking look out? Like, goddamn, like what the fuck is the matter with you? There's such a fucking weird ending to this movie. It's So it's basically, she's hanging from a ledge and Cary Grant's trying to save her and pull her up and... You know, this guy comes up and he's going to go step on Cary Grant's hand to make him fall. And then they, you know, the police shoot that guy 
and they let Cary Grant save Eve, but, like, Eve is not believing she can get up. Like, she doesn't believe she can come back up on the ledge. She doesn't think she has enough in her. And he basically is, like, coaxing her into it. And then out of nowhere, like, in the middle of the scene of her, like, trying to get up, he calls her Mrs. Thornhill, and it shows that they're, like, married, and... You know, he helps her into a car and then they ride off and it's like the end of the fucking movie. And it's like, what was that? What what are we talking about here? You know what I mean? Like, it was just fucking bizarre. But it is what it is. So some of the praise, I mean, obviously the score of this movie is fucking amazing. It keeps your blood pumping. You know, it's just, it's great. And then you've got like, overall, just the writing of this movie is top notch like the, i mean just the dialogue is great but like on top of that because like it's a big thing with hitchcock that he wanted people to stick to his script and it's like he you know he fucking he does an amazing job i mean he really does he knows what he's doing and so he go you know he goes all out and he you know he gets some of those cool cinematography shots you know like the the overhead shot that I was talking about that I think was a matte painting but it's like it looked real enough that I was like yeah I mean something's off about it but it's really good like it's really well fucking done and I don't know how they accomplished it honestly like I I think it was an animation but I, I won't keep mulling over what it was actually but I mean my only criticism for this movie is probably that the plot can sometimes be hard to keep up with. You know, I mean, it's it's only natural. And um, so apparently, a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, only eight feet of film was cut from the final release. Eight feet is about five seconds, which is 120 frames or so, which is ridiculous. Like, that's unfucking heard of. And Cary Grant told... Alfred Hitchcock that he had no idea what was going on in the movie and Hitchcock said that he liked to keep it that way because it made it appear more genuine on screen that he didn't know what the fuck was going on. During Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint's first meeting on the train she says I never discuss love on an empty stomach but as you can see pretty easily if you watch her mouth what she actually said was I never make love on an empty stomach. This was considered too saucy for a respectable movie, so they redubbed the line because, you know, they censored it, basically, is what the story is. So I thought that was it's interesting. I hadn't really seen that in a lot of movies before because I think a lot of movies didn't push the limits of what they were allowed to do. One, one thing I found super fucking interesting is... The movie took longer than expected to make, but Cary Grant didn't mind. And so the blurb is... That's because in addition to his $450,000 base salary, which is $3.7 million in uh, $2016, so obviously this is a little dated, and a share of the profits, Grant was paid $5,000 or $41,000 adjusted for inflation per day for every day the production ran over schedule. And it ran way over schedule. Shooting hadn't begun even when Grant's seven weeks were up and the daily bonuses started kicking in. This lasted for 78 days or $390,000 worth adjusted for inflation. That's about $3.2 million. So basically he almost doubled his salary just because they couldn't get their shit together and get this fucking picture done. So uh, that's pretty interesting. Another little tidbit is the title of this movie is 
pretty much meaningless. I couldn't find any real nuggets. Sorry, I know you guys live and breathe for that, but I couldn't find any nuggets. And runtime, 136 minutes. Budget, 4.3 million. Box office, 9.8 million. IMDb rating, 8.3. Rotten Tomato critic score, 97%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. Get the fuck out of here. Alright everyone, thank you for stopping by. I uh, think I rushed this episode a little bit, so I'm going to cool my jets a little bit and stop freaking the fuck out. You know, obviously check out my other episodes if you haven't already. Um, I've got a a lot of stuff coming through the pipelines and I apologize if it's uh, not exactly what you're looking for, but you know, don't hesitate to look around and and see what you see. All right. Thanks everybody. Have a good day. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr.